Hi everyone, I'm Suzanne Delahunty and this is Freedom Hunters, a podcast about inspiring people who have changed careers and found freedom by following their passions in life. We talk about their career journeys, how they change career, the challenges they faced along the way and what success means for them now they're doing what they love. Today's inspiring guest on Freedom Hunters is Naomi Mdudu. Naomi started her career as a fashion editor for some of the UK's biggest print publications. Several gruelling years later, Naomi dreamt up a career which involved the creation of content which was meaningful to her. This led to her establishing The Lifestyle Edit, an online destination and podcast designed for and about women entrepreneurs, their experiences, their challenges and their achievements. In addition to this, she's a business coach and consultant for female business founders all over the world. In this episode of Freedom Hunters, I talk to Naomi about her decision to leave the print world behind, as well as how she made the transition from editor to businesswoman. Naomi also shares invaluable advice for anyone with a burning desire to start a business and follow their dream. It was such a pleasure to talk to Naomi. She brought a dose of refreshing reality to the subject of quitting your job to start a business. She's seen it all before with her own clients and has a lot of wisdom to share. I hope you'll enjoy the episode. Hi, Naomi. Welcome to Freedom Hunters. Thank you so much for having me. What did you want to be when you grew up? I always wanted to be an editor. I didn't know at the time whether it would be on the st- like styling or editorial side, but I knew that I was going to work in magazines. So you had that vision from a pretty early age? There was just no question about it. I remember, you know, scarily young, if you think about it, like 12 years old, you know, just devouring, you know, Elle and Vogue and just absolutely loved the writing. I loved the imagery and the storytelling in the imagery. I was absolutely mesmerised. And was it the fashion as well? Were you always interested in fashion or was it magazines generally? It was both. It was both. Um, I actually started out on the more product side. Um, It was that combination. I loved reading the articles. Like I could refer back to, you know, issues now 10 years ago. That's how much I was kind of loved them it was both and it was kind of a journey for me kind of exploring where where I would um, end up but no I never really had a an inkling then how things would unfold I just knew that magazines were where I wanted to be. So where did you go to university and what did you study? So I went to SOAS which is a school of oriental and African studies it's one of the colleges of the University of London And I did the LLB, I did the law course. So what makes SOAS different is that you are learning the legal systems of Asia and Africa. Um, So I come from a really academic background. Um, So even though I'd spent so much time interning and then assisting stylists, editors, um, coming to my family and saying that I was going to do kind of fashion journalism or a media related course was just not even... It was like a non-starter. Um, so yeah, I ended up doing law. Was that? Was there any part of you that thought you would end up becoming a lawyer after that? Never, never. I absolutely loved my course. I really enjoyed the intellectual challenge. And I would always say that if I had another life, I would have loved to have worked for a women's NGO and kind of really pushing for constitutional change on the continent. But... 
yeah, in another life. I always knew. Everyone used to laugh at me because I'd come to lectures with suitcases because I'd be going to a job straight after that or would be running to St. Pancras to get on the Eurostar to go to Fashion Week. There was just never a question that I would go back to doing that. So it sounds like while you were studying, you were doing, was it internships or work experience? What was it at that time? Yeah, so I'd the great thing is because I always knew what I wanted to do, I was interning from the stage that I was legal to intern. So by the time that I was in university, I was already having my own freelancing roles. So I was either freelancing in my own capacity as a stylist or journalist, and I was also assisting lots of editors who used to work in magazines and had gone freelance and were doing their own thing. Um, and I also were, had a website at the time, which is was called the Fash Pack. Um, the Fash Pack. The Fash Pack. And we were writing fashion news. So, you know, a new creative director at that kind of fashion house, um, those sorts of things. So I was really kind of in the thick of it. So how did you manage all of those things at the time? Sounds like it would have been pretty hectic. Well, I'm a type A personality. <laughs> so yes, I always knew that I, law wasn't the way that I was going to go, but it was like, it was always, if I'm doing this, I'm going to do this to the best of my ability. I was like, I'm going to get a first. I'm going to, if I'm going to spend three years not doing what I know that I ultimately want to do, it needs to be worth it. Um, and it came really intuitive to me, fortunately. Um, and yeah, just in my spare time, because it never felt like work, the fashion side, um, and the writing side, it was just a pleasure to to spend the time that I wasn't kind of committing to my academic studies to making sure that, that, that I was working on that. Also, by kind of being in that world, I could see some of the pitfalls too. So I was seeing, you know, women in their late 20s, early 30s that were still assistants and living in London on an assistant wage. And I knew that there was no way on earth that that was what I was going to have when I graduated. So when you graduated, what was your first proper job? I became the fashion editor of City AM. Wow. That's pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> I, I started that job two weeks after I graduated. What did that job involve? So because our team was very small, it was one of those jobs where you had this job title, but the remit went way beyond that. So so as fashion editor, I would manage all of the fashion content um, that you'd see in the newspaper. But also while I was shortly after I started, actually, we started a supplement, which was a bit like ES magazine um, that was monthly. So I would do cover interviews for that. Again, all of the fashion styling for all of the shoots, all of the coordination for that, and then all of the long-form features and interviews. Um, but again, because we were such a small team, day-to-day, -day, because we'd, we'd, at the time, I think we'd only had maybe one fashion page a week. Um, so I would help, I was sat on the lifestyle desk, so I was writing theatre reviews, restaurant reviews, you know, arts and culture, kind of anything that came under lifestyle I was writing about. That's sort of the dream job for so many people, and by people I mean me. <laughs> yeah, it was a real, it was a real baptism of fire. Yeah. You know, I remember, I remember my comp, my, the first day that I had conference. Conference is basically where you go into your editor's office and they're asking you what to put on the pages, and it was just yeah, it was such a baptism of fire every day, having to be kind of reactive and you know 
yeah, there's no working in newspapers, there's no off day, mm. you know, and as my career progressed, you'd have, you know, our commercial teams would come over and say, Naomi, I've just sold um, some ads. So you have a DPS by tomorrow. A DPS is a double page spread and I would have to produce, mm. you know, 2000 words that will be going out in tomorrow's newspaper. And were you always good at writing or is that something that came on the job? I, it, it always came naturally to me. It, mm. And I think especially coming from that kind of academic background, it lends itself really well to journalism. I've actually found it more challenging now having my own business and having to speak more in the first person as opposed to that kind of, you know, reporting more reporting formal style of writing mm. so no that that came really naturally to me and like I said I'd already been freelancing for clients for years by that point so I was really confident um not so much with the, the turnaround but definitely um the writing itself was something that came naturally to me so then you moved from City AM to another publication is that right yes yeah, so I went to Metro so that's um a free publication around London, which is huge. It's got a huge circulation. So yeah. was that a similar kind of role? Um, similar kind of role, yes, but on a larger scale. Metro is the second largest newspaper in the country. Um, so just, yeah, so definitely everything that I'd done, but on a, on a higher scale. Again, we're working on bigger brand partnerships than I'd ever had the experience of doing. So... Yeah, it was just kind of playing at a at a different level. Mm. And was it still a fashion focus? Yep, still fashion focus, but it's also managed beauty. And again, newspapers at the time when I was really starting my print career was at the time where a lot of the changes were starting to happen. So again, you would have your area of focus, but everyone had to support each other. So I was still you know, writing about beauty. If we needed someone to write about beauty, I was doing travel, I was doing, you know, um, but yeah, fashion was still my core. Yeah. And what did you like most about that time and working as an editor? I loved the storytelling. I loved the storytelling. I loved, there was nothing that I loved more than being able to go and spend a day with my interview subject and just kind of be as a a fly on the wall and be able to take all of that away and enable the readers to be able to get insight into what that was like I remember one story that I did I was a fly on the wall in a very famous London chef um restaurant for a very famous chef and Again, it was just like, it was so mesmerizing. Um, so to be able to, yeah, to have access to these phenomenal people um, and then be able to relay that story in a way that people feel like they were there too, I just loved. But you obviously came to a point where you decided you wanted to do something different. Can you tell me how did you arrive at that point and then how did you know what you wanted to do from there? It was a multitude of things. Um, first things first, I was just really unhappy. Like I said, there was a lot of changes that were going on in publishing at the time. 
a lot of focus was now going online, but we weren't building teams for online. It was the same print teams that were now doing double the work for the same pay with no kind of thanks for it. It was really affecting my mental health, my physical health. I was the first in the office in the morning, one of the last to leave. I was carrying work home on, you know, many of us, because there's only one person per department, we we didn't have assistants, we didn't have writers, we didn't have freelance budgets. So the idea of going on holiday was just like foreign because you would have to pay for it because you'd essentially be working, creating all of the content that you would have been doing had you been in the office. So by which point, (laughs) by the time you're on the holiday, you're exhausted. Um, So I was just completely running on empty. I was one of those friends that was just, you know, hoping that people would cancel plans before I did because I didn't want to be that person again that was cancelling on plans. Also, when I was thinking financially, the investment that I was making um, and the hours that I was really putting in and also the money that I was bringing into my section with the relationships that I'd had and bringing in that kind of commercial partnerships and things like that, the numbers just weren't adding up for me. So considering the compromises, it just didn't make sense. Um, But I did really love the storytelling. I did really love um, being able to share these stories. So I knew that I wanted to do my own thing. I didn't really know at the time what it was going to be. Um, and again, I was like, why, why am I not seeing these stories online? Print is going online. The content just seemed so transient. It, you know, it was that very kind of listicle, you know, flash in the pan type story. And as someone who'd spent their career in print, um, I really wanted to, to, to bring that essence in online and be able to kind of utilize a lot of the access and the people that I was talking to and kind of put the tell their stories in an online format. I started looking at the landscape um, and I felt like there was a real opportunity because, of course, a lot of the people that I was talking to were heads of fashion brands, um, founders of fashion companies. Very often, I'd spend a whole afternoon with them and it would almost feel like I was getting an MBA in business. Mm. And I was like, where are these stories, right? I know everything about your wardrobe, your style, but you are a force when it comes to business. Where is this information? And as I was looking out, it was very kind of Forbes, you know, middle-aged white guy, head of a Fortune 500 company on one side, And then in the consumer magazines that I knew and loved, it was so aspirational and so surface level that it never, it was always, this is where this person is today. Um, But no kind of, I wanted to know the dot, dot, dots. How did they get, how did they get to where they are today? How are you making this story relate to where I am right now? Um, And that's how, that was how the lifestyle edit was born. That's where the idea came from. I love that. So you're sort of saying like, yes, you have amazing style, but how did you get to where you are now? Because obviously if you're interviewing them, there's a reason for that and it's not just because of how they dress. Completely. And also I, fashion was just becoming so transient. When you've been doing it for that long, it's, 
oh, this one's another collaboration. I, I remember just doing a gift guide and I was just like, if I have to do another gift guide with a Smyson notebook, like, I'm going <laughs> to, I don't know, I'm going to lose it. It just all became the same. And I was like, I want to create content that makes an impact. So what was the idea then that you you had? What did you want to do with it? So I knew that I wanted to share the stories of creative creative women. Um, it evolved before we were f- focusing on careers, but now obviously it's solely on um, entrepreneurs, but creative entrepreneurial women who are making their mark. Some people that you know, some people who are the movers and shakers behind the scenes, but I was always adamant that I really wanted it to be really honest, candid conversations, talking about things like money that you just wasn't seeing elsewhere. And also talking to women who were willing to speak about the totality of their experience, the highs, the lows, the opportunities, the challenges. Um, And even more importantly than that, the strategies that have contributed to their success so that anybody reading or listening to a piece of our content will be able to have something actionable and tangible that they can implement into their lives. Because the content that I was reading at the time just felt like so foreign to my experiences and the experience of my peers. I really wanted that to be a differentiating factor with all of the things that the lifestyle did and stood for. So you had this idea. Can you tell me how did you go about actually then changing careers and starting up the Lifestyle Edit? And in particular, a lot of people have asked me, how do your guests manage it financially? Because I think that's what's, you know, probably holding a lot of people back is they're just thinking, well, how do I do it when I can't afford to take a pay cut? You know, I'm I'm really interested to know um, how did you make that career change yeah it's always really I always am really iffy about sharing the story because my path and my experience was very unique so I don't think it's something that it it's it's not (laughs) so you have to it's a it was a different experience so I was very fortunate in many ways so just to give you guys a little bit of context so because there was so much happening in my life at the time um, and it was, there was a lot of compromises happening. I, everything, it was literally a, you know, everything burns down for that, for the, um, what's it, the, the analogy to rise, the, the phoenix writing for the ashes, <laughs> thank you. Um, that is exactly what happened to me. So at the time, I had been saving away to buy a house with my then boyfriend. Um, then decided to walk away from that relationship, then decided not to buy the house, decided to, so we parted ways. I ended up moving back home, um, but I had this now chunk of money that I'd kind of thought that would be going towards our house. Um, So I had that as a kind of safety net. So that really gave me the confidence to be like, I'm going to be okay. Like, I'm not just quitting my job, leaving and not having any financial security. I have that. And I was fortunate enough to go home. So I didn't have any overheads. So really, my sole focus then became, okay, this isn't a permanent situation. How can I use the fact that I don't have those overheads to really 
make this a scalable business. Um, so I was so I was very fortunate in that respect. Um, and then the great thing is that I started a business that was a content business and content was what I knew. One of the things that people don't realize with the kind of editor's roles and publishing is that, especially in newspapers, you are responsible for working with the commercial team and bringing in as much revenue into your section as possible because every writer, every journalist, every editor wants more pages the more money you have, the more pages you get. So I always knew that I know how to, to commercialize editorial content. So I was like, I've already got the content. I already have the relationships. I know that I know that I'll be okay. And I knew what the numbers looked like. So I was like, if I even get a fraction of this, I'm going to be fine. People stay in their jobs so long that by the time they take the plunge, they want to be as far away from it as possible, whereas that is like your calling card. And further evidence of that, um, so I thought, yeah, I know how to commercialize editorial content. I'll be completely fine. The industry just wasn't ready for it. <laughs> it wasn't ready for it at all. They were like, careers, what? They wanted fashion was more sexy. They just didn't understand, you know, where where branded content would fit in terms of entrepreneurship and careers. Um, so that was completely wrong. Um, but so at the same time, I had all of this experience. Um, so very quickly, unintentionally, I started getting clients. So while print was in flux, brands were also in flux. All of a sudden, they needed to have an editorial voice. They needed to be online and offline. They needed to be connecting with influencers. They needed to be having events. Um, so they wanted an editor who kind of could give them that perspective. Um, so I started consulting with a lot of brands, many of which I was working with before. Um, and then I started investing a lot more time in the US, just interviewing people, creating content for the website. And obviously by virtue of doing that, I was in front of founders all the time. Um, and they were like, you are amazing at this. I don't have the, the capacity to do that. How can we work together? And before long, I had a roster of about 10 clients. And then how did it develop from there? So the wonderful thing about doing that was that it gave me the space to really create content that was authentic. I never had to compromise what we were putting out there because I was waiting for a brand partnership or or I needed to try and figure out how to make a brand partnership made sense. We didn't commercialize any of our content at all because fortunately, because I had this great business, I didn't need to. So that's the consulting Yeah, business. exactly. So that really enabled me to... Um, pump up the production values of the content that we were producing um, and just really kind of drive that and really focus um, in the early stages of the business on community building in an authentic way rather than trying to build community and instantly try and monetize on it. So what were the biggest challenges when you first started out on your own? Oh my god there are so many. Um, I think one of the biggest ones is the mindset. And I always tell my clients and just the women in our community that it never ends. But I remember in the beginning, 
one of the biggest challenges was that, you know, I was well known in my industry and a lot of people, it, it created so much pressure that this, okay, I've, I've, you know, people were like, oh my God, you've worked so hard. Why would you leave that? What is this new thing that you're working on? Now it's crazy because everybody is kind of, entrepreneurship is the thing. Everybody's out there doing that. But it wasn't at the time, you know, getting a print job was like the holy grail. And that was, that at the time was job security, which is really ironic saying that now. Um, so it felt like a lot of pressure. So when I made that transition, I almost kind of went completely under the radar because I felt like I needed to get away from the questions, the the pressure of that this had to be, you know, what it needed to be so that I could just be kind of really laser focused about what my vision needed to be. And being able to kind of shut out the noise, listen to my intuition um, was was definitely one of the biggest challenges. And now I don't necessarily see it as a challenge. I see it as one of the things that I lean into the most. Another challenge that I found is that my business is a heart-centered impact business. I created it because I wanted to be of service. Um, and I think in the early days, sometimes my commitment to doing that would bypass the realities that this isn't you know, none of us are running NGOs. This is this, you know, you can make an impact while also creating an incredible income. Um, and the moment that clicked for me was when was the moment where financially things completely started to be get into a state of flow and abundance that I just never dreamt of. So you provide coaching and consulting services for women entrepreneurs. Are there any common themes that you see your clients grappling with, either in their businesses or in, in life generally? Yeah, um, there are many. Um, one of the common ones is that they have created a product or service that they truly believe in, but haven't actually done run the numbers and understood that just because you've created something that you believe in doesn't make that a business the numbers have to make sense um and it's i think that's the saddest thing is that because entrepreneurship is as visible and as sexy as it is right now there's so much about go chase your dreams quit your job start this thing and I see so many people that do that and very quickly they fall out of love with the thing that they created because because they don't have that business grounding there's only so much that hustle and sheer grit will take you. Mm. Um, and then what typically then starts to happen is that they get into like overwhelm and panic and they start consuming every book, every podcast, and then they're realizing, but why is it that for that person it's working, but it's not working for me, but it's actually because they don't have any context. They have so much information, but don't have not necessarily the have the experience to be able to see how am I applying, how does that apply to what it is that I'm doing? Um, and so again, it's this constant state of overwhelm. And then what will then happen is that they're like, okay, so let me create another product or service. 
when they haven't actually made the first offer that they've done viable. Another mistake that they'll make is purely focusing on vanity metrics. So it will be, what's my follow account typically? Um, but actually there's no strategy to to their marketing at all. And again, they'll get very frustrated because they're like, okay, so yes, we've got our follow account to this amount, but no one cares when we launch this product or no one cares when we've launched this service. We can, we're not converting followers into subscribers again, because they don't have that, um, a strategy to do that. Um, so again, I think that's the biggest problem is that people get so wedded in product development and, you know, creating this great service without knowing the numbers and knowing that it's actually viable and without having the, the, the strategies in place to make sure that they're actually creating marketing that gets people excited about parting with their money and investing in what they have to do. Right. So if you go back to that point you're making where there's this overwhelm when people launch into something and it doesn't turn out that it's as glamorous or exciting as perhaps they thought or there are elements of it that they don't love, what what kind of advice would you give to someone in that situation? Uh, there's, there's multiple parts of that question. So there are always going to be parts of it that you don't love. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. you don't love. I think so, that's the thing about following your passion is it's great, but there's going to st- you're still going to be looking at numbers and spreadsheets and yeah. that sort of thing. And if you don't love that, then I, I, you've got to kind of accept it as a part of what you're going to do. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's one of the first things I say to my clients. And it's really lovely because that's one of the eureka moments that then helps them and, you know, they end up, you know, rapidly growing their businesses is that the product or service part is 10% of your job. And if you're not willing to do that, then you're you're doing the wrong thing. And that's why I believe that if you're thinking about starting your own business, take like informational interviews with people that have done it. Because that's why I think that the content out there right now can pe- make do people a disservice because it is this, you know, follow your passion, do all of that. And then people get the shock of their lives when they actually do it. And they're like, I'm actually spending more numbers time doing numbers or doing the sales like you have to love you have to love and embrace all of that Mm -hmm. and then they'll end up trying to delegate too soon without even understanding what those different things means how can you hold those people accountable what are you measuring you Mm -hmm. you just have no context and that drives your costs up as well yeah it just it's yeah and you have your also then at the behest of your contractors because they can suddenly raise their rates and you don't even know how to measure their their work whether they're actually performing because you don't understand what it is that they're doing definitely don't advise doing that um but I think it's about first things first I would recommend really focusing on understanding the numbers first and just thinking of it from a from a um a step-by-step process as opposed to being like let me consume as much as possible and that's what I see is you know, they're listening to this podcast that's talking all about Instagram strategy. And then someone over here is talking about, um, ref- you know, Pinterest and webinars. And you've got to be doing online courses and you've got to be doing this. So 
It's like you're not even at that, or Facebook ads, you're not even at the stage of Facebook ads. First of all, make some money before you're thinking about something like Facebook ads. So first things first, get your MVP. Really understand who your target audience is. Don't create your product or service in a vacuum. Who is the audience that feels that pain point so much that they're willing to invest in a service or product like yours to overcome it? Then create a minimal viable product based on where you are right now, not something that you need to learn in order to create that that product or service. Where you are right now, what can you offer to that demographic? Then you don't have a business unless you know how to sell right? So you need to understand the numbers first in order for that to make sense. Then marketing and sales has to be your number one focus because you can't think about all of these other grand strategies until you have a reliable source of bringing leads into your business in an, hopefully you want in an automated, but at least regular way. That's fantastic advice. What advice would you give someone who's doing a job that, or in a career that they don't love, but they might be afraid to make that step and, and or to, to make that jump and change their careers? I would really urge you to sit with yourself and ask, what does success mean for you? How do you want to feel? I read the book, uh, I started like devouring Danielle Laporte's books and she really emphasizes this and it's all about like aligned work. And she has this whole exercise. It's about, yeah, how do you want to feel? What does living your best life mean for you? And and there's another book by Barry Tester. It's like The Art of Money. And hers is about that. It's like, what does your best life look like? So that is about money financially. What does your best life look like? You know, what is what is the type of work you're doing? How many hours are you working a day? Who are the people that you're working with? All of those sorts of things. And then Barry's book ends up putting a price, helping you put a price on that. Um, I think not enough of us sit with those questions. It could be, sometimes I've had people who have jumped into entrepreneurship, but then when we start to un- tackle all of that, it's actually better suited in being in in full-time employment. So I think while you are still in full-time employment and you're thinking about taking the leap, ask yourself some of those hard questions and be really honest with the answers and get as much um, candid accounts from people who have already done that. I think you have to be a specific type of person to to jump into entrepreneurship it's not for the faint of heart at all what kind of personality do you think is best suited for entrepreneurship you have to be willing to fail every single day you have to be willing to lean into the crappy parts as well as the great parts you have to be willing to push out of your comfort zone You have to be willing to show up every day. You have to be willing to, yeah, it's not about, there's no, there's no off days. There's no, like, I'm not feeling it today. Mm. Um, And you have to be able to kind of thrive in that type of uh, 
environment. Yeah, a, a lot of my guests have said similar things in that the the biggest challenge for them or what they find difficult in when they're doing their own thing is money. Like always constantly having to think months and months ahead in terms of okay, what jobs have I got coming in and what leads have I got to follow up? It's quite a, a different way of thinking and working compared to being in full-time employment definitely and that's why I think I was really lucky in the sense that I saw my role as like what do they call it now entrepreneurship where although you're in an organization you're running your role enables you to kind of get a feel of what it's like to kind of run a business so because I was thinking that way then it made that transition a lot easier um, but yeah, it, it is, a, I would say stay in your job as long as possible. It needs to, I wouldn't leave my job until I've got to that point where I have that MVP and I have a way of, that th- that is now viable. I now am not in feast to famine. There is enough consistent interest and I've created those channels to feed my pipeline. Mm. I wouldn't leave my job until that has been established. So having a, a parallel sort of project going with your career would Absolutely. be the way to do that and then sort of spend every spare moment you have. Yeah, it takes yeah. the pressure off so that you can, when you do take the plunge, you can really enjoy what you're doing without it being that your mortgage is on the line because that's when you start making compromises mm. early and you don't want to be making those compromises when you're first starting out at all. Yeah, great advice. What is success for you? Success for me is feeling like I'm doing fulfilling. I mean, every day I'm, I'm doing something that feels fulfilling and meaningful. Meaning for me, purpose for me, but also making an impact externally. So it sounds like you've actually succeeded then absolutely every day absolutely and finally uh because i'm obsessed with travel i'm always asking people for travel tips so what's your travel tip for where you're from or where your family is originally from okay that's such a good one um for new york seeing as that's where i'm spending the majority of the my time i would say get out of the places that you know whenever i have friends that are coming to the city the first place they go, I want to go to Williamsburg. I want to go. New York is such a, it's like brimming with rich, diverse, like it's incredible. And you don't get that. You don't get that when you're just staying in the latest place that's had a feature on Time Out. Like, immer- as they say, immerse yourself in the city and be around actual locals. That's not on in Times Square go up to Harlem, like spend time in Queens. Queens was just voted like one of the best places in the world for like culinary, um, their culinary diversity and offering. Like get out to the places that people, like real New Yorkers live and kind of get out of that, you know, Soho to Williamsburg bubble. There's so much amazingness that I only managed to, to experience when, you know, I started essentially living there and by having, you know, my husband-to-be is born and raised in New York, I felt 
felt like I was seeing New York in completely different eyes after living, you know, traveling there for years. Mm. Um, so definitely get out of that. Yeah, you're a woman after my own heart. My sort of travel philosophy is to just check out neighborhoods and rather than get to all the tourist sites, I love nothing more than to sit in a cafe in a cool little neighborhood and just watch the world go by for a little while. Favorite thing. Mm. Favorite thing. Okay, so neighborhoods out in Harlem and Queens. And- yeah, Harlem, Queens, even like Brooklyn. Go like down south and south more south into Brooklyn, like Cobble Hill, especially I know a lot of people listening are from the UK and Europe. It's Cobble Hill is like the closest feeling to home, Um, but it's a more residential part. It's like where people live as opposed to, it's like less of a transient neighborhood than Williamsburg. Um, Yeah, so explore. Like if you're starting in that place, like go a few more stops on the train. Hmm. The great thing about a city like New York is that there are the neighborhoods are around the subway it's not like london where you have to travel a little bit further out you know you could go a few more stops and you know there are restaurants there's so much just at your fingertips just i would definitely say just explore outside of those kind of buzzy hip zones fantastic well i'll definitely add that one to my list great tip Okay, well, thank you, Naomi, so much. I got so much out of our chat and I've loved talking to you. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to Freedom Hunters. I hope you enjoyed the episode. You can rate, review and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It'll give the series a boost and help others find it. And you can find out more about what I'm passionate about on my website, secondsister.com or Instagram at Suzanne Delahunty. Tune in on the first of every month when another inspiring guest will be sharing their story of how they found freedom in a career that they love. 